Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. One day a young minister named Dwight Lyman Moody heard somebody say, The world has yet to see what can be done through one man totally surrendered to God. And Moody said, Oh, Lord, let me be that man. I'm talking today to Dr. Richard Buse, and the story of D.L. Moody and his commitment to God and to the cause of Jesus Christ connects in a very personal way with uh, with Richard Buse. Dr. Richard Buse is a preacher, he's a pastor, he's a broadcaster, a hymn writer. For a number of years, he was the rector of All Souls Church, Langham Place in London, where he succeeded uh, Dr. John Stott, who himself had an amazing ministry there over the years. He's with us here at Beeson Divinity School. He's become one of our very dear friends, one of our favorite Bible teachers. He's with us for the Beeson Pastor School, and it's a delight to welcome you to this podcast, Richard. Thank you very much indeed. I'm so thrilled to be here in an atmosphere, a temperature of about 100 degrees outside, but it's right. wonderful. We're cool enough here. Now, pick up right where I began with how D.L. Moody is connected to you and your family and the story of the Christian faith. We owe so much to the evangelist D.L. Moody because he was on a whirlwind tour of Britain in the year 1882. And he came down finally to Plymouth where my grandfather, Tommy Buse, was the youngest of 12 in this family. It was a professional family. We don't know how it came about that he went to hear D.L. Moody one Tuesday night. We think it was they were a professional family. They had parlour maids in those days. And we think the parlour maid took Tommy along at the age of 14. It was Tuesday night, September the 26th, 1882, in the drill hall at Plymouth. And there Moody was preaching on the text. Genesis 3, verse 9, Adam, where art thou? And Tommy made his response that night, stood up with 56 others to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, mm. then wrote a letter home that following Friday to his sister Evie, and in the letter saying, My dear Evie, I have some good news to share with you. Last Tuesday I went to hear Moody and Sankey at the drill hall, and there I was saved. We've still got the letter in our family. And from that conversion of Tommy Bues. God did an amazing work uh, in the Buse family. Talk about that. We're very grateful for that parlor maid. We don't even know her name. But to me, she must be one of those who won multitudes of people to Christ because she started, or rather, D.L. Moody started under God, a Bible line that's gone right through our family through the generations until now, and now I'm a preaching grandfather myself. But Tommy became a preacher. He went to... Ridley Hall Theological College in Cambridge University and became a preacher. His son, Cecil, my father, uh, also became a preacher and a missionary in East Africa. And now I, too, seem to be in the same way. And, of course, we've got others in the family, including cousins and nephews and all sorts of people, in mission of one kind or another. It is an illustration to me of how one sermon does more than just reach one person. Mm. It can reach, actually, a dynasty of people. Wow. Incredible. Amazing. Now, you spent much of your life as a pastor in London, at several different congregations, including All Souls 
talk about pastoral work and your experience as a pastor. What was the hardest part of being a pastor? And how would you look back on that at this point in your life? When I was thinking about becoming a pastor, what happened was we were on the lowest slopes of Mount Kenya. I was a child, a missionary child, of course, looking at the mountain, having breakfast. And my two brothers were talking about what they were going to do when they were grown up. So Peter, the oldest, he was about eight and a half then, said, I'm going to be a doctor. Sure enough, he became one later. My younger brother, who was then about five, chipped in quickly and said, I'm going to be a businessman. Mm. That sure enough happened. Then they said to me, what are you going to be? I couldn't think of anything. I started fidgeting and feeling awkward. Then my mother chipped in. She said, I wouldn't be surprised if Richard one day becomes a church minister. The conversation changed. I said nothing. But inside I thought, that's it. That's it. I'm going to be a minister. I'm going to preach. And I never changed attitudes from that day until today. Billy Graham kind of strengthened that conviction when I heard him as a teenager mm. at the great Harringay Mission in London in 1954. That when it was like a drumbeat going through my head. I'm going to be doing that. That's right. That is what God wants me to do. So I think I received my call from my mama mm. under God in a most extraordinary way. And then the hardest bit, I suppose, first of all, was thinking, whatever am I going to do when I'm a minister? What do I say? when I get up in front of people. And I remember being challenged the very first time I ever had to speak in public by the man who taught me about speaking. His name was Eric Nash. He was the head of a scripture union house party in Britain. He said, I want you to, to give the talk. Okay, I said, I'll do the tennis coaching. I, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, run, I'll run the games. He said, I want you to do that. He said, but I want you to, to give the talk. So I spent about a full six weeks preparing that talk. I lay in bed. Finally, I knew it like a parrot. I'd say it off my head, over to myself in bed, and think, I, I think I got it. Then I got up and disgorged the words like a little parrot, having had a really hot bath beforehand to save my shivering limbs from the terror in which they were engulfed. So part of that was the terror of actually, what does one do? What does one say when communicate? And then how do you behave with a whole lot of different people? So basically, I'm a shy person. And uh, to think of exposing myself in public to others and leading them as well, uh, that, I think, was the hardest bit. Even then, when I became rector of all souls in Langham Place, I'd find at the end of service, morning service, I think, right, we're now shaking hands with the people as they go out. Off they go. But then a lot of them would go downstairs for coffee and fellowship. And I think, come on, go downstairs now and go through the door and just mingle and go slowly weave your way through because you want to, exp you must expose yourself to people and you want to in the end do that so that uh, you have every chance of getting to know God's people downstairs. And of course there'd be often an avalanche of problems and questions coming at one. But nevertheless, that was in one sense the hard bit, but it was also a very great privilege bit because you suddenly find you become the repository of masses of secrets mm. of people. Mm. That's a great responsibility. Yeah. What about your relationship with Dr. John Stott? Oh, John Stott. I knew from the age of 13 because when we came to Britain finally from Africa, it was he who drove me to my first Script Union house party there under Mr. Eric Nash. 
He took me in the back of what was then a, a, an army jeep that he was running and took me to the camp, to the house party. And uh, so I got to know him from that time. And it was at that house party that, well, in a strange way, my decision to follow the Lord in that personal sense followed on after my call to the ministry. I made a firm decision at that house party, listening to Mr. Nash. So I owe John Stott a lot for, first of all, bringing me to that house party, then getting to know him. I got to know him very well. Going to Cambridge University, we'd get him to come and speak, lecture and so forth. He'd always recognize me instantly. So as a family friend in one way, and then as a kind of mentor and a guide and a counselor, and some of the, when I became a new minister, a new a pastor of a church, of course, there'd be all sorts of problems coming up, sometimes nationally, sometimes locally. And as occasionally I'd be on the phone or write to him. He'd write beautiful letters back. So he became a mentor. So when I came to All Souls, it wasn't too frightening because I knew him already. And then people would say, aren't you a bit scared of coming up and working with somebody who's a, a mighty expositor of the Bible? And I said, no, not really, because he's so far ahead of the rest of us. There's no competition. Mm -hmm. So that was all right. Also, by that stage, he had no executive responsibility in the church. He was now doing a worldwide ministry, mm -hmm. nevertheless one of the preaching team. So he'd say to me, Richard, you're my boss. Well, I'd say, very well, but you're my bishop. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's how it worked out, that we got on along very well. He was my next-door neighbor for 22 years. We'd be in and out of each other's place. I'd be in his place more than him in my office because my office was never very tidy. His <laughs> was always immaculate. So we'd have coffee and prayer together every Saturday night if we wow. were both in town. Amazing. And that yeah. was a, a grand, grand relationship. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about your ministry at All Souls and uh, particularly your, your focus on worship, preaching, and hymnody. It's not often I get to speak to a hymn writer. That's a special gift. I admire people who can write hymns. You've done that, and you believe in hymnody as a way of worshiping God. What's your interest in, in this part of music and worship? Well, don't you think it's partly D.L. Moody again? Moody once said, I think in about 1875, music and the Bible, music and the Bible, are the two great agencies with which to reach the world. And so I think that's completely true. We need both. We need the Bible, of course, supremely. But when you think of Wesley, the two Wesleys, John Wesley and Charles, his brother, Charles wrote the hymns, John did the preaching. So if John was off form in his preaching, you could be quite sure that Charles would come to the rescue with the sheer quality of the hymns that would carry the show. And then when I think of how when some destructive liberal theology started entering the church around the turn of the century, last century, and started invading the world, what held the saints around the world was the hymns. Because at that point, I think you could say evangelical scholarship was still establishing itself better. Not enough, but now it's established itself much better. But in those days, it was the hymns, really, that rescued the saints of God. So people remember hymns. When they're in times of trouble, the hymns come floating back to them, especially the hymns that they learned when they were young. Hymnody is vital. We sing in the Christian church. Maybe other belief systems do other things. They may chant or they may uh, recite, things like that. We sing. And I think we're about the only 
belief system in the world that really does believe in thoroughgoing congregational singing. That's a wonderful thing. And when I think of Sankey, who was the soloist who would sing alongside helping in the ministry of Moody, Sankey would compose songs and hymns that either were very good as solos or were magnificent when they're sung corporately by a big crowd of people. Mm-hmm. Those Sankey hymns did a lot. So when it comes to writing hymns, I'm not really a hymn writer. I think I'm really more of a gap filler. So I think of gaps. So when director of music at All Souls, one day Noel Trudinick, I was talking with him, and I said, listen, we're going to preach in about 10 days' time on Moses and the burning bush. What hymns have we got on that? He said, nothing. I said, nothing? How can that be? Well, he said, why don't you write on? I said, all right, I'll try and write on. And I said, if I can think of a tune, I'll give it a tune as well. Or, he said, try the tune of Chariots of Fire. So I wrote a hymn, which I called The Mountain of God, four verses, and put it to the tune of The Chariots of Fire. The BBC accepted it when we did it on a television broadcast, so we got permission for that. So that's one hymn. It was really a gap filler. And then I think of some of the psalms. There came a stage when in the Church of England we weren't chanting psalms so much. We were more like wanting to sing psalms uh, in a metrical way. So I thought, very well, let's do that to Psalm 46. God is our strength and refuge. And I thought, shall I write a tune? For it? I can occasionally write a tune. But I thought, no, we'll do it to the tune of the Dambusters March, which is part of a, a tune, the music of a great film. And that went well. I think that that's a little thing I can do mm-hmm. uh, a bit is gap filling when it comes to writing mm-hmm. the hymns. Yeah, we had Elizabeth Elliot with us uh, some time ago, and she talked about growing up, uh, learning these hymns, as you say, when she was a small girl. Of course, she's uh, from a wonderful missionary yes. uh, family, the, the Howard is. family. But uh, then when she went to South America with Jim Elliot, and they were often isolated and no real fellowship with other believers, the thing that kept coming back to her and that sustained her in those long and difficult hours were the hymns. Of course, the Bible, too, but the hymns that she had learned as a little girl, that gave her a, a strength and a resilience. She had people like Fanny Crosby. Yeah, all those years ago, she was contemporary at the time of Sankey. They knew each other. Fanny Crosby, who was blind all her life, but nevertheless had a Puritan grandmother and mother. They brought her up in the faith, and they fed her with the Bible. And By the time Fanny Crosby was ten, she knew the first five books of the Bible by heart, all the Psalms, and all four Gospels. Mm. And out of that rich treasury poured 8,000 hymns. So blessed assurance, to God be the glory, uh, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. These wonderful hymns, and some of them I try to learn by heart. So when I get up in the morning and have my little cup of tea at the start of the day, and uh, I think of the Bible, of course, I want to read the Bible, but I like to start with a hymn, I like mm. to sing to the Lord. And some of those old hymns, they stay in your memory. Of course, we like the new hymns, mm-hmm. too. And there's some great new hymns being written, particularly in Britain, I think. Remind me, is it Stuart Townend? Stuart Townend has written some grand hymns. And a man called Keith Getty, yeah. he's done some grand hymns with yeah. his wife. And there's a Timothy Dudley Smith who writes in a more formalized way, but he was my dorm leader 
at that uh, house party that mm. I first went to. So I've known him all my life. He became a bishop later. He's poured out a stack of hymns, Timothy Dudley Smith. And he's got poetry running through his hymns as well. So that uh, when you see a Timothy Dudley Smith hymn, you, there's sort of little hallmarks. I think that's a Dudley Smith hymn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're great. And we try to use those here at Beeson as well as the Stuart uh, Townend and the Getty hymns. Yes. They're, they're just wonderful. In Christ alone, that's become almost our favorite uh, expression of praise exactly. to God. Exactly. There are those hymns. Yeah. And uh, they'll, some of them, some hymns, of course, won't last long. Some are there for 10 years and then they go out. Yeah. But others will last. I think so. And then they'll yeah. stay in people's memories and feed their souls. Yeah. Now, we've talked a little bit about your family, your grandfather, Tommy Buse. Your father was a missionary. Your mother, who was instrumental in your calling to the ministry. That's a wonderful story. You have, or the Buse family has, a family crest. Now, that's a little strange for people in North America. We don't usually have family crests here. Uh, what is a family crest, and what is yours? What does it say, and what does it mean? I think it comes out of old families. And our family, the, the name Bues, B-E-W-E-S, Bues, derives from Bayer in uh, France, the Bayer tapestry people have heard of. So I think what happened was we came over with the Norman Conquest. We were among the conquerors. came over in 1066, it seems. So we go back to Bayer, France. Um, and so Bayer slowly became Bues. And uh, actually, it's really a Devonshire uh, family, ultimately. Uh, we must have landed there in Devon. And uh, so we had that crest. And what would happen is that these established families would devise some symbol that they liked. Ours is a Pegasus a horse with wings, riding on top of a, of a chapeau, a hat. And then underneath are the words uh, in Latin, meo ab adversis, that is greater in adversity. Uh, meo ab adversis. So that we like quite like that. We like that, uh, uh, that motto very much indeed. It's wonderful and has a great spiritual meaning uh, as well. Well, it's better than some of the ones I've seen. I saw one called sort of Nothing Without Work. I thought, oh, yes, all right, it's okay, but I prefer greater adversity. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're talking about adversity. Um, I want you to say a little bit about some of the strains that you see in the life of the church today, certainly in Britain where you live, but also you visit North America. You have a great heart for Africa still, where your early roots, some of those were. Uh, as you think about the church and look at the church uh particularly in, in North America and maybe Western Europe, including Britain, uh, what do you see some of the strains are, and then where are the points of encouragement oh, and, and hope? Indeed. I find that today some churchmen, some leading churchmen, are a little bit perhaps too fond of talking about the West as being in a post-Christian era. I listen to that phrase and I think, no, I don't like that phrase. I don't agree with that phrase. I think it's more exciting than that much more interesting than that. We're now moving into, I think, a new pre-Christian era. Mm. We're sort of moving towards where Paul was when he came to Athens and saw all these different altars and shrines dedicated to different beings and gods. And if you walk into Leicester Square in London, England now, you find yourself hobnobbing and rubbing shoulders with all sorts of strange sects and oddball religions and different belief systems as well as Christianity, and I think, hey, we're back in Athens again. Mm. 
you you can go into indeed into one of the big stores in the Oxford Street in London where they've got stacks of books and you go to the religious books section and you can see books on all sorts of subjects like yoga and a whole lot of other things. And I remember a friend of mine did that and he said to them, uh, can I see your stack of Bibles? And they said, we don't stock Bibles. I thought, that is darkest London. Uh, of course, actually, there's a lot of Christianity going on. That's one of the challenges, that there's uh, been a certain loss of confidence in the Scriptures. I suppose we'd say, what, over the last 300 years, mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. And that therefore, uh, those colleges, I mean, I was at Cambridge University, at Emmanuel College, Jesus College, Trinity College, St. John's College, and so forth. Mm -hmm. All Christian names, because it was the Christians that began the colleges. That has sort of changed now a good deal. And we find, indeed, well, in those olden days, people could uh, take all sorts of different subjects like uh, mathematics or uh, music or whatever, and they, but they'd all be slices out of the same cake, the same one truth that seemed to govern everything. Now we're moving into an era when people are talking about different truths. You have your truth, feminist truth, the Marxist truth, and so forth. You can take now different subjects at these universities. It's fragmented a lot. You can do a degree in uh, some, the life of some great sportsman or a great football player, something like that. So that's what we got to at the moment. It's still interesting because we can still set out our stall, which we have to do. But nevertheless, in the West particularly, there's a lot of fragmentation going on. It's exciting in that we can set out our stall and we find there are people now in Britain who have not the faintest clue what Christianity mm. is about, which means that they've not got too much bad luggage mm. uh, behind them, of bad memories of church that they didn't like or things like that. That does give us an opportunity. I think that's mm -hmm. encouraging. So it's an age of new evangelization in a way. That's the opportunity and the challenge for us, uh, particularly in North America, Britain, Western Europe. But what about... You know, the global south, we hear a lot about, read a lot about that, Africa, Asia, Latin America, there's a dynamism, there's a power seemingly uh, that's just amazing when you visit. Uh, talk. You've been there, I know, a number of times. What, what's your impression of that? Very much so, yes. It's very exciting. So when I think of uh, my African friends, when I think of Nigeria, for example, I say I'm an Anglican, uh, Church of England, all that. Well, there are more Anglican believers in Nigeria alone than there are in Britain, Europe, America, and Australia, and Canada put together, just in one country. Uh, so you get the same sort of proportion in Kenya, or in Tanzania, where they're putting up one new church every seven days in the center of Tanzania. Or I think of a place in, well, a very certain place in Asia, where a good friend of mine, with his organization, is putting up an average of 17 new churches every day. And when one thinks of that, I mean, we've got bright spots in Britain, actually. I mean, over the past 10 years, it's said that uh, churches that take the scriptures seriously are increasing in membership by 68% over the past 10 years. So there are lots of bright spots in Britain. Mm -hmm. But when I look at the swarming statistics of uh, India or of Africa, where it seems in Central Africa, for every African child being born, two Africans are becoming believers in Christ. Uh, or when we take China, it's, uh, the church is uncontainable now. Mm. I think the Chinese authorities are not too unhappy about that because they recognize that Christianity creates stability 
wherever it is. It does not create dissension, but stability. So although they persecute the church, I suppose, or put a bit of pressure on it, nevertheless, I think they're not too unhappy to see that. And uh, when a friend of mine, well, my publisher actually, was doing some work in, in China recently, he went into a house church where they, there were about 40 people there on Sunday, and at the back was a Chinese lady just tapping on her laptop. And afterwards he said to her, what are you doing? Were you taking notes? No, she said, I was admitting hundreds of people by Skype from all over China into our house church that Isn't day. Isn't that something? I guess that's been reproduced in many places. That's fantastic. We're almost out of time, but I, I want to spend a few minutes talking about your writing. You're a great preacher of the gospel. You've been a wonderful pastor and mission leader and visionary, but you're a writer, and you're a very good writer. You, you mentioned your publisher. I think that's Mr. William McKenzie of William McKenzie. Christian Focus. He's a good friend of Beeson uh, Divinity School. And tell us about your writing. What you're writing now, and uh, what what might we uh, read by you? Well, you know, it's like the the hymn writing. I'm not a proper hymn writer. I'm a gap filler. I'm not a proper writer. I'm a gap filler. So I think of the real writers. Some of the great theologians of our time, and of course, I think of my own dear next door neighbor, John Stott, and others who've written magnificent books. I don't, I'm not like that, but I am a gap filler. So I look for a little gap in the market, and I think, I believe that by God's grace, I might fill that. So when it came to, so I don't write books on preaching, because I thought there are plenty of books on preaching, but there's nothing to get the early preacher off the ground. So I thought, I'll fill that gap. I'll write a little book called Speaking in Public Effectively. That's all it is. And that's just to help, well, any of us preachers, I suppose, but certainly the beginner. Uh, and at the moment I'm writing, again, a gap filler. I've started writing it. My daughter gave me the title. She said, Dad, call it Top Tips in Christian Work. So I called it that now. And it's basically to help, again, the average church worker, the church member who wants to get involved in service for the Lord. It can help ministers, I hope, as well. But things like, how do we lead a meeting? How do we start a prayer meeting? What about a Bible study? How do we do Bible study? What about one-to-one work? When we're meeting with our friends and want to convey something of what we believe to them. Or how do we meet with criticisms? How do we answer you know, all the critics about the, about the Christian faith and so forth? What about prayer? What about speaking in public? So it's an attempt to be a gap filler that, the top tips in Christian work. Wonderful. Let me ask you about two other titles of yours. Um, one is called The Lamb Wins. Oh, what a great biblical title, The Lamb Wins. And the other one, uh, one, one of my favorite books you've written recently, The Good Night Book. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, yes. The Lamb wins. Well, again, there are these mighty commentaries on the book of Revelation. Some of them are wonderful. Some of them are difficult. Some of them are quite dense. Um, Some of them are magnificent. But I thought, again, let me be a gap filler there, because not enough people can get into the basics of the book of Revelation. So I thought I will try and distill what I've learned from some of these wonderful theologians and bring it down to a level where the average beginner or comparative beginner well, the person who's scared of Revelation can actually get into it. So that's what I call it, The Lamb Wins. And it's a shortish book. It doesn't take too long. So that a preacher could get hold of it and say, I believe I can preach my way through Revelation now with the help of this little book. That was That's part of it. And the other book you mentioned was The Good Night Book. That came partly, I suppose, out of a time in hospital when I was uh, having some serious operations 
and thank God I come through them. But at the time, I remember thinking, I'd like to read a little book right now for myself, just bringing me not too much on a page, enough, and with a print big enough, so I don't have to concentrate too much. And I thought, what about the good night book? It can help also busy people. The end of a busy day at business, when they want to just curl up and go to sleep, is there something for them? So that prompted me to write really a page a night mm. with the idea that the last thing you think about as you go to bed at night is what will stay with you in your subconscious and help to build you as a person. That's fantastic. My daughter Alice, who's a beautiful young woman and very bright woman, loves your books. Uh, somehow they speak to her. She's a seeker and a wonderful young Christian woman, but um, your books have found a way of speaking to her in a, a very powerful, direct way. That's very encouraging. Well, we have to encourage each other in this game, and what, whenever we can do that, it's a wonderful thing. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Richard Buse, our friend, our Bible teacher at the Beeson Pastor School, a wonderful minister of the gospel, such an encourager. Thank you, Richard, for being with us today. Thank you very much, and it's wonderful to be with you. You've just listened to the 52nd episode of the Beeson Podcast, a whole year. And as we enter our second year of podcasting, we'd love to get your feedback. What have you enjoyed? Tell us who and what you would like to see featured on the Beeson podcast in the coming months. We trust this podcast has been a blessing to you and your ministry, and we encourage you to visit our website at www.beesondivinity.com slash podcast and click the comment link. We'll read every single comment we receive and receive it with much appreciation. Thank you for listening to the Beeson Podcast and for all of your comments that have come in during this past year. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.